Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Jankowski, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Frank Young. Frank is the president of Vertical Market Software Solutions at Global Payments, a leading payments technology company delivering innovative software and services to customers globally. Frank has spent his career at the intersection of innovation, technology, and commerce. Prior to his current role, Frank was at Google, where he led strategy and partnerships supporting in-store, online, and P2P payments. Before Google, Frank held senior roles at Firethorn, now a division of Qualcomm, at MasterCard Advisors, and at Accenture. Notably, he is a Wharton alum, so we're especially excited to feature another Wharton grad breaking new ground in fintech. Welcome, Frank, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be here, Peter. Thank you. So could you start with telling us a bit about your background? Yeah, it's, uh, I wish it was more exciting, but uh, you know, I, was, I grew up in a working-class neighborhood in New Jersey. Uh, Jersey City. It's changed quite a lot since I grew up there, but I, I left, did my undergraduate work at Rutgers. I had worked primarily through college on Wall Street, so I got some exposure to the financial services sector through college. Did my uh, Wharton MBA from 92 to 94. Had a fantastic experience while I was uh, while I was at Wharton. When I got out of Wharton, my previous full-time work experience had been with Chase Manhattan Bank. This is Chase of kind of many versions before and my last assignment at Chase Manhattan Bank was in their retail bank strategy group. It was the first time that I had been exposed to uh, strategic planning. And I really liked the challenge, the, the problem-solving nature of that profession, and uh, which was what ultimately led me to uh, business school in the first place. When I left uh, Wharton, I came to Atlanta. I had a summer internship working for former President Carter, who was in the process of leveraging the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta to encourage entrepreneurial activity in the city itself. Fell in love with the city, had, a, had an opportunity through President Carter to meet captains of industry in Atlanta. Chose this to be my full-time uh, location and took a job with Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture at the time in their strategy practice. Had a nice 10-year run at uh, Accenture. And in my last year there, I worked for a really interesting partner who had previously worked at Bain in McKinsey, who spent a year at Accenture and then went and started a strategy practice with MasterCard. Obviously, a lot of folks know MasterCard as a dominant player in the financial technology space. I spent four years there and got introduced to the concept of mobile payments. This would have been in the early 2000s. And everybody was talking about how the mobile device was going to be the payment device of the future. And I was right in the middle of it working for MasterCard, consulting the companies around the world. Fell in love with the concept, and I found a, a pioneer right here in Atlanta uh, named Firethorn that was uh, working on mobile payments. Uh, they were one of the first providers to bring mobile banking uh, to the masses in, uh, in the United States. Firethorn, interestingly enough, one of our early investors was a gentleman by the name of Billy Payne, uh, who was the uh, chairman of Augusta National. Firethorn was named after the 15th hole of Augusta National. Uh, they did quite well for themselves. Uh, they had an exit to Qualcomm, the mobile chipset manufacturer, and did very well on their investment. And it was great to be working at a startup. I did that for four years. At the conclusion of that, the world had changed. iPhone had come on board. And Firethorn's entire business model, which is a proprietary app distributed through AT&T and Verizon, the entire business model got turned upside down uh, because the iPhone made it possible for anybody to deliver 
develop apps and distribute them through the app store. And so the Firethorn business model, we spent a year trying to pivot. And in the midst of that pivot, Google had announced their intentions to enter the space through a product called Google Wallet. And I was just, my hair was on fire to be a part of that. And so through my connections in the industry, I was able to secure a position in business development at Google. I left uh, Firethorn, moved my family to California, spent uh, close to four years at Google iterating on the Google Wallet business model. In four years, we had four different business models, the classic product market fit, trying to figure out what the, what the play was going to be, and then decided I wanted to find my way back to Atlanta. And Global Payments at the time was right in the midst of trying to determine how to take a traditional payment processing company and build a software business off of the back of the payments business. And so we were very much a traditional processor viewing software as the, the next growth curve of our, of our trajectory. Uh, some others have come at it from being software companies adding payments, uh, but that was a pretty compelling story. Jeff Sloan, the current CEO of Global Payments, also a Wharton grad, uh, had a very compelling vision. He's a maestro when it comes to kind of navigating the complexities of financial technology. He had previously run uh, Goldman Sachs's global fintech practice uh, for many years, and I was sold on his vision. And uh, it was able to join just about five years ago. And so in that time period, through multiple uh, acquisitions, I want to say when I joined Global Payments, we were an $8 billion market cap company uh, this year. Not sure what COVID is going to do to the to the others in the Fortune 500, but we're very close to uh, having entered the uh, uh, the Fortune 500 this year. So in the five-year time frame, uh, we've done enormously well, acquired several uh, software companies. I now manage the portfolio of software companies within Global Payments, which accounts for about 3,000 of our employees. It's the fastest growing, highest margin producing business in the Global Payments uh, portfolio. And that's what I uh, that's what I lead now. So it's been a close to thirty year professional experience that I just uh, summed up for you in about five minutes. That's really helpful, and that's a fascinating background. There's a lot I'd love to dig into with you. To start with, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the industry. So you've worn many hats over your career, and you've seen payments go from what many consider to be a back end function to what's now a key part of the customer experience. Curious to hear your thoughts on what are what are some of the broad trends that you've observed over the course of your career? Yeah, some of the trends that I see, I find it fascinating that even today, given how long e-commerce, digital commerce has been around, we're still at a point where e-commerce is still not the majority of how payments are done. Digital commerce is not the majority of how payments are done. It's very much still a, still a game of face-to-face payments. That may change based on where you are in the world, but for all practical purposes, you know, there's still a lot of cash and coin out in the market. And so that represents a a really long tail of opportunity to continue to innovate and drive uh, drive growth. And so it's, it's, uh, it's been an evolution, not a revolution in terms of how fast digital commerce has come on board, but it's unstoppable at this point. I, I really admire not only my own firm, Global Payments, but companies like PayPal that are really taking advantage of, uh, of that move to digital. There's just so much upside that still is yet to take place. 
Uh, what's more interesting in terms of dynamics I see out there, just a general observation, is uh, the staying power behind Visa and MasterCard. Those companies have found so many challengers attempt to rise up to displace them because they're enamored by the margin profile, the size. If you look at the market cap per employee of Visa and MasterCard, it's comparable to the Googles, the Facebooks, the you know, these big scale digital businesses. They run enormously valuable franchises with a very kind of small number, relatively small number of employees. And what I find is a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of venture, venture capital over the years has attempted to go after that space, you know, to become the new Visa MasterCard. I, I can't tell you how many pitch books I've seen that said, if we can only get 10% of Visa MasterCard's volume, we'd be a billion dollar business. And I always say, good luck going to get, you know, 10% of their business because they're so entrenched. They've got regulatory capture around their business models. Uh, but the most underappreciated element of their staying power, I think, is the operational infrastructure that every company in their sphere, whether or not it's somebody who uses uh, Visa MasterCard, accepts Visa MasterCard, the amount of infrastructure that's been built up around their rules and regulations is almost unbreakable. And so I see them in terms of what's changed. It's kind of what hasn't changed. Visa and MasterCard will be around for a very, very long time. And our business model is fundamentally a part of that ecosystem. It's been very lucrative for us. It's been very lucrative for a lot of people. But unless you have a very strong regulatory regime like they have in China and India, it's going to be very difficult to dislodge Visa and MasterCard from their, from their positions. But then that also, it, it, it does fascinate me how in markets like uh, India and China, alternatives have emerged. They haven't emerged naturally and without the help and assistance of very strong uh, regulatory regimes. But the changes in those markets around how people conduct commerce uh, day in and day out has been uh, really interesting to watch. Really interesting themes. So to follow up on the first point on digital commerce and electronic payments generally, in some of my previous project work, I was really struck by the staying power of cash. Even in the US, it makes up something like a third of all transactions. What, why do you think that cash is still king in a lot of ways? And how do you see that changing as a result of the current pandemic? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I, could, I could say absolutely that what we're going through now I think cash and coin will almost, from a consumer's perspective, will have a perception of, for lack of a better term, being dirty, right? Being a transmission method by which germs will be transmitted. So I, I, I personally think that we're going to see a big change in consumer behavior. It's going to vary based on a segment, uh, based on vertical in terms of where things are happening. But, you know, I've got a general view in the years that I've been around that if you're, if you're going to try to improve something and change muscle memory, consumer muscle memory. And there may be no better example of consumer muscle memory than the act of taking out a piece of plastic from your wallet in the, in the form of a credit or a debit card, handing it to somebody to swipe or tap or whatever. That muscle memory is very, very difficult to change. And if you're going to change it and come up with an entirely new way for somebody to pay for something, 
you literally have to shoot for 10x improvement. And it's got to be 10x improvement, not just for you as the consumer, but for the merchant as well, which has really made innovation in the payment space, the consumer payment space, so difficult to achieve. Contactless payments have been around for ages, but how much better is this to this? You know, I can, I can swipe my card or I can tap my card. I mean, that muscle memory, it's not a 10x improvement. And so what we find in our observations where people have deployed, as an example, contactless payments, people, if it's kind of in their face, you know, Apple Pay or Google Pay accepted here, Samsung Pay accepted here, people may kind of take out their phone and try it. But the next store that they go to, if it's not in their face saying Apple Pay or Google Pay accepted here, without even blinking, they're just going to reach into their wallet and pull out a card and they won't feel disadvantaged by that. Or even if the tap doesn't work for some reason, if it mechanically does, you know, fails to authorize. We've not heard very many stories of consumers who have just been so outraged by the lack of contactless acceptance that they walk out of a store. It's really nothing for the consumer to simply reach into their pocket, grab a card and, and pay. And so contactless has still had a really tough time in, in kind of being adopted in a, in a broad scale. Uh, it's increasingly so, but uh, it's not that often. Now, when you deploy it in a subway, in a turnstile, it's a really cool experience, right? Especially if all I've got to do is take out my phone and tap the phone on the turnstile instead of having a ticket of some sort. So those use cases, but and that's a 10x improvement, likely because I've got, you know, 10 people behind me who are wanting me to hurry up through the, through the turnstile. So category by category, you know, payments in terms of the war on cash, it's been really tough to kind of make a dent because the alternatives just it's, it's an exception basis where the experience is 10x better. Now, fast forward to today with social distancing and COVID. We are observing merchants in particular who are trying to figure out a way to enable contactless, I should even say touchless experiences. I mean, the gold standard in touchless experiences is your Uber experience, right? It's been known for many years. You know, the fact that I use my mobile device to summon a vehicle. It picks me up, takes me to my destination. I get out and walk away, and I never have to even think about payments. Payment just happens, right? It's disappeared. It's been absorbed. It's embedded in the experience that, that you have uh, with that particular service. And so the more of that that could propagate, and it's not easy, right? Amazon stores are attempting to do the whole notion of walking into a store, taking items off of a shelf and just simply walking out without ever having to interact with a cashier. There's still some work to do to make that broadly acceptable everywhere, but I think you're gonna see more and more of that. Same thing in, uh, in the restaurant use case. You know, the ability to walk in, order, order off of your phone as opposed to having to touch a keypad to enter in a PIN code. We've got a lot of lot of merchants, a lot of retailers, a lot of restaurants that are asking us for solutions around how to avoid putting up situations where consumers have to touch things. And so uh, I kind of I like to refer to it as touchless payments as opposed to contactless payments. Contactless payments has a notion of the tap and pay that's been around for many years, but touchless payments is more, you know, how do I just implement or execute a payment without having to engage physically? Uh, with any physical infrastructure like the Uber experience is something that a lot of people are trying to figure out answers to. 
Yeah, that's great insight. And I think you're right that cash, it'll definitely be seen as dirty, at least in the near future. But that's it's also an opportunity for contactless payments and touchless payments because they can really start to offer that 10x improvement that you spoke about. I know that MasterCard's already reported a, a big surge in contactless usage in the last month or so. Uh, on this idea of touchless payments, I, I agree that's the next frontier. And in a lot of ways, it ties to this idea of embedded fintech that you've written about. Could you tell us a bit more about embedded fintech and the opportunities that you see in different industries? Yeah. And so it takes a little bit of history in terms of where, where payments have kind of evolved over, over the years. And it pretty well matches my, uh, my kind of career trajectory in consumer payments Many, many years ago, I'm not sure many of the observers of this podcast may remember the years of what are, what are called in the payments industry, the knuckle busters. And so these were these me- mechanical machines with carbon paper. You'd put your card in and you'd kind of get an embossed image of the card on the carbon paper. And that was the way payments were done. So completely disconnected from ringing up your inventory at a retail store. They put your card in this, uh, in this contraption. They run a carbon copy of it, and that, that in some point later, in some batch manual process, the card would be processed, and you'd get a bill. We moved from that to electronic, where which has been around for quite some time, where you've got a terminal that was typically produced by the likes of companies like Ingenico or Verifone, where the card was swiped. Maybe there was a pin involved, maybe a signature, and that's how the how the payment was processed. Again, still still disconnected. Uh, from the inventory system that the cashier was ringing up your order. And then we moved to an era of what, what's called integrated payments. Integrated payments is where you as a business owner are deploying some software to run your business. And you could be any, anybody from a dry cleaner to a law office, to a doctor's office, a vet practice, what have you. The, the way that you pay is integrated to that software. And so that software vendor would sell the package and the proposition to the merchant would be, and oh, by the way, uh, we have a partner that will provide you with a merchant account. Let me make a referral to you and you can open up a merchant account with our partner and uh, their software works with our software. And so that was an environment, if anybody listening may recall where Maybe the screen was facing the person ringing you up at the counter. You hand them the card and they swipe it on the side of the computer. It's kind of integrated into the software. It wasn't a separate terminal, right? Starbucks operated this way for a very, very long time. But now, so integrated payments, very lucrative. It was a great way to get business. It required companies and global payments was an early innovator in the integrated space. Our success there was we weren't selling to merchants. We were selling to software vendors. And software vendors were then referring our business to their end customers. But that entire business model required companies like Global Payments to tailor our go-to-market strategy to the software vendor. They were our customer, keeping them happy, making sure that they were generating the referrals for us. And that continues to be a very lucrative, fast growth business for us. What we're now seeing and what Global Payments is also innovating on is in certain verticals, not all verticals, but in certain verticals, it makes sense for us as the payment company to own the software. And so we now have a portfolio of uh, software applications that serve the healthcare segment, the education segment, all the way from K-12 to university, 
uh, the restaurant and hospitality sector, the food service management, gaming and casinos. There's a whole set of verticals where we made the determination that in order to in order to bring a new and different proposition to customers buying those solutions, payments simply had to be a part of the overall package. It wasn't a referral. It was here's the application you need to run your business to deliver the experience that you want to deliver to your consumers. And there's a fixed price for it. And oh, by the way, it just happens to have payments included. So there is no notion of the merchant or the end customer having to go out and find a different a different provider for that. It just comes embedded into the software. And so there was traditional payments, integrated payments. We're now in the world that we see called embedded payments, where payments are just becoming a part of the solution. The interesting part for people who follow financial technology is seeing how different participants are entering that market space. On one hand, they are traditional payment providers like Global Payments, we're a 50-year-old company. Companies like us who made a determination that we need to assemble a set of software assets, and we're doing that primarily inorganically through acquisition. And then there are uh, big tech firms or even small tech firms that are seeing an opportunity to assemble a set of resources on the back end, but they're software companies adding payments. I think the best case, if anybody wanted to look at an example of a company doing this, is probably Shopify, where they developed a shopping cart platform, great experience for merchants selling online, and then they added payments. Now they've got Shopify payments, and if you study their business model, you can see how lucrative that's been for them to uh, to grow their business. And so we see it as you've got software companies adding payments, but it's really kind of embedded into their overall solution. And then you've got payment companies that are buying software companies. And again, keeping that software company's brand, which is what we do when we go to market, and that just happens to have payments. And so that concept of embedded payments is really taking on in in a lot of ways. I like to say that uh, you'll know that we have succeeded in achieving the vision of payments when we stop talking about payments, right? Payments is really just a symptom. It's Every business needs to succeed by its cash register ringing. That's just a symptom of some different activity that occurred between that merchant and that consumer. And that just became the byproduct of a, a, a successful interaction. That's when embedded payments has reached its full potential. And that merchant didn't have to do much more than implement that software in order to achieve that, that end result. And that's what we're working on every day at Global Payments is trying to bring that to, uh, to bear. That's the, the true definition of invisible payments, I suppose. Yeah. On a related note, we've talked about the role of, of tech players in payments and talked a bit about ISVs and ISOs. I'm curious for your thoughts on a different player, big tech. It seems that big tech is increasingly entering financial services. You have the new Apple Card, Google's announcement of a checking account, all of the different pays and wallets. Given that you've spent some time at Google, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on what's motivating the entrance of big tech into financial services and how will that whole ecosystem evolve? Will big tech own more of the consumer relationship and start to relegate the traditional incumbent banks to being more utility back-end type providers? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic in play. And so Google's you know, efforts, I could talk directly to that. 
sort of the, the, the good and the bad. I mean, everything Google attempts to do, they attempt to do at scale, right? So they want to go after opportunities that are going to be applicable everywhere in the world at scale. And so if they can introduce, it was one of the, one of the problems with Google Wallet and the multiple pivots that they went through is what they were building here in the U.S. wasn't scalable to other markets around the world, uh, be primarily because of the regulatory regime, market to market, and some of the requirements that the banks would would have around how you integrate with them. Uh, one small anecdote, uh, I remember I had an opportunity to pitch an idea to Larry Page at the time. He was the CEO of, of Google and uh, and what was called the, the L team. A lot of people thought L team stood for leadership team, but L team was actually Larry's team. And so it was everybody that reported to Larry Page and they would look at opportunities, big, big acquisition. This was an acquisition opportunity. And I was part of a team that went before Larry and the L team to discuss the acquisition opportunity. And we put together a business case to justify the acquisition price. And we claimed that the service that we were going to develop would be applicable to a billion people within a three-year period of time. And Larry's immediate response was, and what are we going to do for the remaining 85% of the human population? meaning a billion users, was still underwhelming to him, even though, you know, you give me any business plan that says you're going to have a, an addressable market of a billion people, and that would be a home run in many instances. But it gives you a sense of, on one hand, Larry was clearly trying to stretch our thinking, you know, shoot for the, shoot for the moon and maybe you'll hit the sky kind of a thing. And he was notorious for that. But it really gives you a sense of, you know, why are you monkeying around trying to develop a product that's going to be used by 10 million people, which would have been a home run for Google Wallet back back in the day. In the first year, if we had 10 million people using Google Wallet tapping and paying around the United States, we would have thought that that was a wild success. I mean, that's comparable to a very large consumer credit card portfolio. If Apple Pay has 10 million cardholders using the Apple Wallet card, 10 million active users would make them one of the largest consumer credit card portfolios in the world, if you know, definitely not the country. But a lot of people at, at Google and a lot of people at big tech companies are saying, why would we be happy with 10 million when there are more than a billion Visa MasterCard users around the world? Like we got to shoot bigger, right? So big tech, I think, you know, they, they need things that are going to be applicable in many markets around the world and they can scale at a level where it's going to be meaningful to the, um, to the overall success of the company. And so they suffer from big number syndrome where, you know, to have a material impact on Google or Apple's revenue stream, you've got to have a multi-billion dollar opportunity within a reasonable period of time. And I'm just not sure there are that many kind of de novo opportunities for businesses to start up, whether or not that's the Apple card or Google wallet. And so it's going to be a really long, long slog for big tech to make a material change to how things are, are going to be done. I do think that innovators that enter the space have to be very conscious of the platforms that they choose to operate in. And when I say platforms, fintech is littered with platforms. Visa and MasterCard represent platforms. And so you have to understand how to operate within their ecosystems. Uh, Google and Apple represent platforms, and you need to understand how to operate in their ecosystems. And so there, there's a lot of kind of flavors to this. I think uh, big tech will continue to make investments. If I understand what Google announced recently related to checking accounts, 
I don't believe they're going to be the deposit-taking institution. I think they're trying to build a layer on top of the existing deposit-taking infrastructure, which is highly regulated, and bringing, you know, consistent with their mission of organizing the world's information and make it more, you know, usable is the role that they're going to play. But to your point, I think part of your question was, was right on, which is in that world, Google becomes the interface that the consumer is using to get access to that information. And the banks, the balance sheets where the information is stored, the balance sheets where the regulatory focus is to make sure that the way that the money got into that regulated system was consistent with all the, all the laws that exist to cover money laundering was accurate. It really does relegate the, the banks and the financial institutions to a bit of a utility provider. Uh, one framework I've used to kind of summarize the purpose of banks, I, the way I talk about it, banks have three primary purposes. Origination, how do, they, how do people open loan accounts or deposit accounts? Origination is one, one big function. And there's massive infrastructure to support origination, whether or not that's online account opening, branch opening branches, their primary role is in origination. The second big function is in servicing. And so banks play a role. Who do you call when you have a problem on your statement? How do you dispute a charge on your credit card bill? If I have an address change and I need to continue to pay you know, some loan that I have outstanding, servicing is a big component. And then the third piece is risk management. And I think it's really difficult for a big financial institution to be world-class in all three of those functions. But I think what they need to do, what the, what the big banks, traditional banks need to do relative to big tech is pick and choose what they're going to be good at. I can tell you that I think big tech wants to go after a piece of all three of those. Uh, but I think banks, you're either the best at risk management, you're the best at servicing, or, or you're the best at origination. If you can do two of those three, I think you've got some long-term sustainability. But big tech is going to try to pick off each, each of those three components and figure out how they can apply in origination. It's all through the digital interface. So the operating system, iOS and Android are going to own origination long-term is kind of one hypothesis or assertion I'd make. From a servicing perspective, there's tons of investment going into artificial intelligence and machine learning to bring scale to how you service accounts. And then from risk management, big data, and everything that's going on in terms of how do you price risk, how do you manage it, all of the big data that's going into making sure that they can extract the maximum value out of either loans or deposits. Uh, big tech is, is kind of going after all three of them. That's really insightful. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Switching gears a bit, I'd love to pick your brain on career advice. You've worn many hats in your career and you've seen a lot of change in the industry. If you were to share one piece of advice for someone just starting their career in fintech, what would it be? Yeah, and uh, hopefully the listeners can kind of make this make this real because it may sound too conceptual, but one of the one of the most impactful business books I read. In fact, it was a required course when I joined Anderson Consulting, now Accenture at the time. New associates had to read uh, the Covey book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And habit number one is be proactive. And I got to tell you, that is, that is the mark of an exceptional person coming out of school relative to an average person coming out of school. Average people are usually smart, capable, competent, 
exceptional people are proactive. And what, what, that, what that's a function of is they understand that you're never stuck, right? There's always a way to take a big complex problem, break it down into component parts that you can control and solve for those controllable pieces. Don't be overwhelmed by the enormity of a challenge in front of you, but be proactive. Don't ever be the victim uh, or, or feeling as if, you know, you're in a position or a job or a career uh, that you haven't decided to pursue. Every situation you find yourself in is a direct result of an action or a decision that you've taken. And so own it. And, uh, and if you manage your career in a proactive way, you're not going to make 100% of your choices won't be good choices. They won't be the right choices. But as long as you can make, you know, maybe seven out of 10 good choices, you know, accept three, learn from the three that go sideways. Uh, but be proactive. Ask for that. Ask for that assignment that's going to stretch you beyond your abilities. Be proactive around taking what, what might feel like an insurmountable challenge and break it up into component parts and focus on what you can control. And I can tell you, that from, from my experience, I run an organization now that has 3,000 people. The ones that rise to the top, the ones that make an impression, are, are, aren't the ones who sit back and just wait to be told what to do, but they're coming to me proactively with ideas good ideas, ideas that can be actioned upon. They're not just, you know, coming up with crazy things to think about, but it's the people who are kind of taking action. And so be action oriented and be proactive. And if you can do it consistently, that's great, but I can guarantee it's going to set you apart from the masses of people that are new, uh, new hires to any organization. The most proactive ones are the ones that typically uh, distinguish themselves. That's really good advice. Thanks for that, Frank. And on a final note, and on a more personal note, curious for what you like to do for fun outside of work. Yeah, so I am very much a, uh, a family man. I gave up golfing uh, years ago. Interesting, when I moved to California to work at Google, unlike Atlanta. Atlanta, you kind of need to play golf in order to uh, fit in with the business world. In uh, Silicon Valley, very rare that you see kind of a lot of people uh, playing golf. It's, it, it's done, but it's just not as common here in Atlanta. So I gave that up, but I have two awesome kids. Uh, my son is very much a sports fanatic and he's consumed with basketball. And so I coach and play with him quite a lot. And my daughter, who's more of a creative type, she'll actually be 17 this weekend. Uh, since she's, she was 12, she's been in a, uh, in a band. So we haven't been able to go to some of her gigs lately because gigs are not uh, part of the uh, shelter in place. But but what I love most about my daughter's musical taste, uh, she got involved in a, an organization called School of Rock. And the music that they teach her is the music I enjoy, right? So she's been in a Red Hot Chili Peppers cover band. She's been in a Green Day cover band. Right now, she does female rockers. And so she's 17 years old and uh, she's a huge fan of, uh, of Billie Eilish and, and that style of music. So it's been a fun, it's, it's been a joy to watch. So in more normal times when we're out and about, I'm either at a, I'm either at a sporting event to watch my son or I'm at a, a gig on the weekends with, with my daughter and I'm a happy man. That's amazing. That sounds like a good time. Well, yeah. thanks so much, Frank. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for sharing your, your advice and your wisdom. We really appreciate it. Yeah, good luck to everybody watching and, uh, and to you as well, uh, Peter. So thanks for giving me this chance.